This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, podsters? I think I like the word podsters better than podcast peeps. Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Thursday, May 10th, 2018. I, of course, am your humble, and after partying with my friends visiting from up north these past five days or so, very humbled, very washed-up host, Patrick Moran. On today's show, the Yankees are red hot, and I'm back on that Yanks vibe, and I got one of the best beat reporters in the industry to talk shop with. I'll be joined by WFAN, the fan in New York City's Sweeney Murty. Sweeney has been the Yanks beat reporter since 2001, and we're talking about several things today, including this current roster that is absolutely killing it so far early this season, as well as discussing the craziness that is being a beat reporter for the New York Yankees, colleagues of his in the media, their relationships, his advice for aspiring reporters, and far more. After that, I'm joined by recurring guest John Elba from ABC7 and Fox 22 in Bangor, Maine to talk about WWE wrestling and what's been going on recently. John's become my go-to guy for wrestling talk on this podcast and he'll help get everyone up to speed on the WWE going-ons as well as offer his insight and opinions, especially on Roman Reigns, Age, and this Stupid nutshot fest going on between AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura that, in my opinion anyway, is kind of ruining that feud. Anyway, let's get to these interviews for today's show, but I must preface something when it comes to Sweeney's interview. I taped his interview during the afternoon while he was driving to the stadium in the Bronx, and anyone who has ever driven around the New York City area and it's 10,000 bridges and tunnels, knows how that goes. Needless to say, his audio input was dipping in and out at least a handful of times, if not once or twice altogether. So frankly, if I'm being honest, the audio output quality of his side of the interview, in large parts, is not good. It's not good at all. However, having a guy is credible and accomplished in the business as someone like Sweeney Murdy is, not to mention his insanely busy schedule during the thick of a baseball season, and not knowing when the hell he may have time to do another interview with me, there's no way 
I'm not going to take advantage of having someone like him on my show as I continue to try to build this podcast into something bigger and better. So hopefully the sometimes crappy audio isn't too much of a deterrent for you. There wasn't really anything either of us could have done to prevent it. And on that note, here's Yankees beat reporter Sweeney Murdy, followed by some WWE talk with John Alba. My guest today has been the Yankees beat reporter at WFAN since 2001, while also being a regular contributor for SNY and, of course, the MLB Network. I'm talking about Sweeney Murdy. Sweeney, thanks for coming on the podcast today, taking a little time out during your drive to the stadium, and I'm sure what's shaping up to be a huge week in the Bronx. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. It's uh, it's kind of fun to have these uh, series here this time of year. Now, we're taping this on Wednesday, okay? So as of this taping on Wednesday, the Yankees have won seven in a row, and they've all been against teams that are, or I should say until after last night, were alone in first place. Overall, they've won 16 of their last 17 coming into tonight's game on Wednesday. What do you most attribute this uh, the Yankees being so hot to right now? Pitching. You know, it's funny to, to say that um, really all winter long, uh, as the Yankees flirted with different starting pitchers and didn't land any of those options, they ended up with bringing CeCe Sabathia back and Tanaka opting to stay in. And we questioned whether or not the Yankees had enough starting pitching. And they've been hit with a couple of injuries already, but they've been able to withstand it, and they've been pitching excellent. The Yankee starters have been pitching to an under-two ERA in this 17-game stretch that you're referencing. And as much as we sit there and talk about whether or not the Yankees may or may not need pitching by the time this is over, at this particular point in time, it's not an immediate need. They are pitching very well. And I think that in our overarching view of what the Yankees are and how they can improve before the season's over, we are forgetting to watch what's actually happening right now. And that's that the Yankees are pitching very well. When's the last time you can remember them being this hot, especially this time of season? Well, I mean, listen, the historical perspective tells you they haven't won 16 out of 17 since 1953. Um, And, you know, you go back to 98 and they had a stretch like this. Listen, they've had plenty of stretches where they've, um, if you you look back, I think it was 2003 and one other year recently where they rattled off 25 out of 35 to start the year, something similar to that. So, yeah, I mean, they've, They've done it a few times. Uh, 2012, I think they got off to a really good start. I think sometimes we gloss over the years when the Yankees don't win a championship and forget how good the teams were. Uh, 2002 was the last time the Yankees and Red Sox met at this point of the season and both having the best records in baseball. Uh, At that particular point in time, the Red Sox were five games in front The Yankees ended up beating them by 10 games, but as we know, they got wiped out by the Angels in the playoffs who ended up winning the World Series. Right. Uh, That was was a really good Yankees team that won 103 games, but because they didn't win, they get kind of pushed aside uh, because of all the other teams in Yankees history. So last night, and again, I'm taping this on Wednesday as Sweeney's en route to the ballpark right now. So last night on Tuesday, 
The Yanks and Boston faced off, both having the best record in the league. Like, as you said, for the first time in like over 15 years, it's only the early part of May, but watching it from home, it kind of felt like a playoff game already. What was the vibe like at the stadium last night, in your opinion, you know, having been there to cover the game? Yeah, I was feeling that for a couple of days, to be honest with you, leading up to it. I, you know, you started to see um, what was at stake and the Yankees streak was still going on. And it's, and when I say what's at stake, it's, yeah, I know there's a hundred and something games left, but um, you play them when they're there. And it did feel, I don't want to say playoff-like. I think that's a little bit different, but you could tell that you know, Yankee fans were feeling it and that this was uh this is a big test. They've played a lot of good teams recently. As you said, everyone they've played has been in first place. And, uh, and they, you know, they just keep reeling off, winning some improbable fashion. So I, I think a lot of that uh, early season malaise that fans felt after a nine and nine start is gone. And regardless of what happens in, uh, in this stretch here at the final couple of games of this series, I think you feel good about, what's ahead. And remember the Yankees and Red Sox don't play each other again until the end of June. So there is a little bit more heightened awareness from a fan's perspective and from a media perspective about this series. I don't want to spend a lot of time covering the series opener from Tuesday night, because again, it'll be old news. Most people will be listening to this Thursday morning, but after what happened last month between Joe Kelly and Tyler Austin, man, it, it felt poetic that it would be Kelly on the mound in the seventh inning with, you know, Aaron Judge out there providing what would end, end up being the game-winning hit. The stadium crowd, it was just, like you said, it was louder than normal. Was it as frenzy as it felt like watching TV? Like, what was that moment like, especially with Kelly being the one to be on the mound? Yankee fans obviously hate him now after everything that happened last month. Was it a little extra special, do you think, for the crowd because it was Joe Kelly out there? Yeah, I mean, they listen, they knew that he was coming in. And, you know, they... uh I actually posted the, a video on, on Twitter of, of him coming in and listening to the fans booing him. Uh, it was predictable. And, and the, I think a lot of it had to do with the way that inning developed with you know, the walks and, and loading the bases. And, you know, that was that heightened the situation, you know, getting the way the rally was uh, was developing. I don't know that it'll be this way all the time. Joe Kelly comes in. I would expect the next time Tyler Austin plays at Fenway Park, you know, he's going to get booed. Right. Um, but, but I don't think these are all-time villains in Yankees Red Sox lore. Uh, I would expect some of that to fade away. Now, we all knew Severino was going to be good this year, possibly great, but are you surprised that he's been this great so far this season? I shouldn't be. Um, maybe I am because we've watched him, you know, really since he came up and we kind of maybe overanalyze him a bit. We watched him have success in 2015, only to fall flat in 2016. And you wonder what was going to happen after he, he bounced back to the 2017 year that he had. I think, I think our close perspective sometimes uh, shades that the wrong way. I've mentioned this many times on the air. I love the fresh eyes that Aaron Boone and his coaching staff have on Luis Severino because when they talk about him, they simply say he's one of the best pitchers in the league, and that's hands down. We watch him up close all the time and tend to say, yeah, he was one of the top three pitchers the Cy Young voting, and he's such a good young prospect. I mean, he's here, and I think we have to start recognizing that he's here and he's arrived. You've seen pretty much everything covering this team, but it surprised you at all, especially earlier in the year when the Boo Birds treatment that – John Carlos Stanton got 
I know he, I mean, he struggled obviously early on and he still is a little bit, but be surprised that he got that Booberg treatment as much as he has. The one in the home opener, I think was, it was more for show. It, it, I don't think it had a lot of uh, full throated meaning behind it because the Yankees won the game. Uh, they won it easily. And Didi Gregorius had this huge day. Um, the fact that, you know, Stanton struck out five times was meaningless to the outcome of that game. Uh, later in the homestand, he did it again, and in some key spots, game the Yankees didn't win, you know, then it had a little more meaning to it, and that was understandable. Um, I don't, I don't, just as a rule, I don't love it, but I understand it. Listen, fans are paying a lot of money to go see this team, and I think every Yankee fan understands. I always look at it from my perspective of, of what I'm what fans are listening to on their way home uh, from a game or what they want to talk about after a game, you know, they just, there's probably a guy who um, dropped a few hundred dollars to bring his family to a game for maybe one or two times during the course of the year. And this was it. He understands the Yankees are going to lose, but tonight better not be one of those 60 or 70 times. You better win the game and entertain me because I spent a lot of money and, when you don't live up to that, you know, that's, that's when things get, you know, you get the reactions that you get, whether it's the booing in the stadium or whether it's calls to the radio station or tweets wanting this guy fired or this guy benched. I get where that emotion comes from, but I think in general, uh, I think fans understand that the players and the management take a much more even kill approach to it because that's how they have to get through a season. Last Yankees question about the current team, then we'll move on to a couple other things. Brandon Jury's headed to AAA Scranton now to continue his rehab. How long do you think Miguel Enhar holds him off at third base? Or do you think, Miguel, that job's his to keep now going forward? I don't know about to keep, but I think that, um, you know, if he's playing well and Drury is ready, then I, I don't see him giving up. I do see trying to manage playing time and keep both guys fresh and try to maximize a good roster. You know, it's, there's no crime in having a good, a uh, good bench and having some good players on your bench that can help you. So I don't, I don't look at him as, I don't look at Andujar as a guy who's laid claim to this job and nobody's taking it away, especially considering the lengths the Yankees have gone to, to get Brandon Drury the last few years and finally got him. Their belief in the type of player that he is, I don't think that they're ready to uh, to make that go away. Uh, you know, and I'm not putting these guys on the same level, but remember, the Yankees one time had Wade Boggs, and they they traded for Charlie Hayes. They had two veteran players manning third base uh, at a championship level team. So when you've got two inexperienced guys, and you're gonna tell them, okay, we're gonna split time, that's not that big of a stretch, right? Let's turn attention to your job a little bit. What's it like covering the Yanks, or what was it like, I should say, covering the Yankees when George Steinbrenner was still running things? He'd call out reporters all the time, and he'd actually call reporters all the time. You know, I got the very late stages of George Steinbrenner's ownership, and he wasn't calling a lot of people at that point. He was issuing statements through his through his uh, media uh, company, Rubenstein Associates. He'd get these three sentence, you know, Mike and the Mad Dog used to have fun with it, calling them missives. They play the patent theme as they read the statement from George Steinbrenner. <laughs> and and George would, you know, the 
reporter, I do remember reporters would huddle outside the uh, the stadium exit and wait after a series like this, they would wait by the area where Steinbrenner would get into his car and they'd shout questions at him and wait for the three word answer that he would give and plaster on the back page as if it was some some you know, titanic response to something. So I, I didn't get the the 70s, 80s version of George Steinbrenner, even 90s version of George Steinbrenner that a lot of people got to cover. But you always knew that anything could happen at any time around these Yankees. You know, I remember my very first trading deadline. I was, I was uh, in 2001. I was petrified of missing what was happening and missing a story and trying to work the people that I knew and stay close to my phone and you know, this is uh, this is you know when you still had landlines too, mm-hmm. and I I finally at one point after about two or three days of of kind of just living in this terror, I decided to go out for lunch. And when I went out for lunch, the Yankees made a trade, and I was you know I, I just didn't know how to deal with that properly. Um, and it wasn't it was, I think they traded for Sterling Hitchcock. You know they didn't you know they didn't trade for Alex Rodriguez that time. It was. There's a there's a lot of uh, little things like that where you know it 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 was an edgy existence, but you know overall you know you kind of just dealt with each blow and moved on and hoped that you could live to see the next day. Now you kind of mentioned this a little bit. The competition among media covering the Yankees, I'd imagine, is like no other. George Steinbrenner, before, or after, ever since. In some markets, there's maybe a tiny handful of beat reporters. In New York, there's hordes of them. Does that make your job more difficult or sometimes stressful to do because of just the sheer volume of people that are covering teams in New York? Makes it more difficult, makes it more fun too, because, you know, generally you've got a really good group of people that you spend a lot of time with every day. You know, mm-hmm. you know you're, you're competition for the story, but you're, you're in the same workplace. You're, so you're, you're sharing the same office, uh, so to speak, when you're at the ballpark or in the clubhouse or on the field or in the press box, whatever it's going to be, you know, so you end up, you know, becoming lifelong friends with many of these guys and go out to dinner on the road and, uh, you know, we're at each other's weddings. And, um, it's, um, you know, that part makes a lot of fun. We're all trying to work the same or different sources to try and get, you know, the same or different stories. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we'll, you know, we'll be the ones to say, Hey, nice job getting that one. You know, it's, it is competitive, but we recognize when somebody does a really good job of getting the story too, we all want our own, we all want our niche. You know, it's, it's nice to be the guy that got it because it, in some ways, in some circles, it's how you keep score. Um, maybe it shouldn't always be like that, but it is to a, to a degree. Uh, the, the competitive part of it and the way get and break stories has changed a lot because of uh, the way Twitter has changed the game in the last 10 years. The, the idea of a scoop, doesn't last as long maybe it lasts a few seconds and then some people might not remember who got to begin with right so it that part of it's changed a lot but there's still you know if you're if you're in the field of reporting and, and you you have a desire to want to to get a story you want to be the first one and you want to have good information you want to make sure that it's accurate and if you get it first, there's a little satisfaction because it means you've, you've done your job well. 
What's one thing, if anything, where you wish you knew back when, before you got into beat reporting, that maybe you know now that you didn't know back then? Is there one specific thing you wish you knew before? Um, that's a really good question. I've dropped a ton of things. Like I, I know that I probably I was 30 years old when I when I started on the Yankee beat, and I know that. I wasn't prepared to do this job when I was, say, 25. Um, I, I just didn't have enough experience of just living and, and working in the, the media environment. And I still, at, at the time, at, at 30, I, I, I was still kind of getting my feet wet with what I was doing. I think you're always feeling like you're, you're learning and you're trying to figure out how to do things. I don't know if there's any one specific thing where I could say, boy, you know, I wish I would have told myself this. I remember my first year, I walked into the 2001 New York Yankees, who were, you know, three-time defending World Series champs and, you know, major star players everywhere. I went in with the idea that this is not a job I'm doing for only the next couple of months. I, I would like to think I can do this for the next few years. So I didn't get overly caught up in trying to become buddies or get to work the star players right away like i didn't need to in the first five seconds know have Derek jeter and bernie williams and ori posada and paul o'neill and all these guys know know who i was roger clemens eddie pettit mario rivera i didn't need all these guys i didn't be in their face to hey here's here i am i'm the wfab reporter and you know i i gravitated to a lot of the the other players in the roster I found them easier to talk to and get my feet wet. And as I got going and I think people saw how I went about my business and the one thing I was fortunate is I have a very visible platform at WFAN. So, you know, it's not like anything I say or do is going to be totally invisible um, to the players. If, I mean, if something is said, it's going to get back to them. Right. So I feel like whatever I did and how I reported it was fair enough um, it's not to say that you don't criticize people. And I think that's what I've always tried to do. And you want them to trust that you're, you're going about your business the right way. You're right or wrong. That's kind of how I've gone about my job. Was it a little intimidating that first year you talked about 2001? It's your first year there, you know, a bunch of superstars on the team, the team's successful. They have won three world series in four years. Like you said, is it a little bit intimidating that first year? Yes. Yes. Very much so. And the Yankees were the biggest show in town. And, you know, they were, and, and listen, again, I didn't just kind of walk in there and I, I was working at the biggest radio station covering the biggest team. You know, I, I have a, I still have a very important responsibility. I see it as, as covering this team for this radio station. So yeah, it's, um, I, I, I think I, you know, just ease my way into it. And I remember different interactions with different people along the way that whether it was, whether it was Joe Torrey or whether it was Don Zimmer or Bernie Williams, Derek Jeter, these guys along the way that, you know, at some point it just became more and, and, you know, put you a little bit more at ease. I, um, you know, I, I, I'll tell you this story. Um, I finished up my work at the stadium and went to uh, Pedigan's down the street for a bite to eat and a, and a beer after the game. 
I was meeting a couple of other guys who were still writing and I, I was waiting up at the bar and I see Bernie Williams um, just sitting by himself, baseball cap, well, not a Yankees cap, but just a baseball cap pulled down over his, you know, and sit at the bar by himself. And, and I walked over and said hi because he waved me over. I waved. I didn't really, I'd been on the job for like two weeks, three weeks, you know, I, I waved and he waves me over and he says, hi, Sweeney, how are you? Good to see you. I'm like, wow, he actually knows my name already. That's, that's great. Right. Um, and he, you know, we start chatting and he said, so he said, um, so I, I heard you were a Phillies fan. And I said, oh, well, I mean, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I grew up watching the Phillies. And as I'm answering the question, it occurs to me that, you know, he's been checking up on me. He's been at, like, he didn't get this from me. He got this from somebody else. So uh, the fact that, you know, that was that was also part of the intimidating thing, but that was also part of the put me more at ease thing that, you know, I mean, this is Bernie Williams, you know, in his prime. And he goes out of his way to not only just, you know, talk to me off the field and, and you know, not shoo me away like other, another reporter or player might, but um, it took the time to want to know something about me. And, and I thought that was, that was, you know, that told me a lot about Bernie and I've, I've enjoyed a wonderful relationship and friendship with him over the years. What advice would you give to someone who wants to get into the business doing what you do? Well, I, I think you have to just do work in the business where no matter where it comes from. I, I, I don't think it's, I mean, it's, listen, it's a good goal, but I don't think it's realistic to, to just start covering the New York Yankees for the biggest radio station. Right. Yeah. You know? and that's great. I mean, you're, 20, you're 21 years old coming out of college. You think you're going to, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's not unlike uh, a kid that gets drafted to play baseball you're not going to be batting cleanup for the yankees tomorrow night you know when you got drafted yesterday right Uh, i think there's experience to be had and there's lots of it out there now which is fantastic i mean you can listen i graduated college 26 years ago okay there wasn't youtube there wasn't podcasts there wasn't iphones i can make and record myself doing something every single day right now and i couldn't do that uh not to the same extent so the ability to just do it even if it's for yourself to see or your friends to see your professors to see or or someone local tv or radio station to see that is infinitely more advanced than anything i ever got to experience i was pretty fortunate you know i set out with a goal of of just working on radio and sports and i I got to do it at a very young age to start with and just kept working my way up and got some breaks where I happened to know people in the right places to give me a chance. And, and then my work, you know, uh, you know, got me to place where I was going. The advice I always give to people who are in these other jobs and they, and they maybe they get a little frustrated because they want to be, you know, whoever they want to be is listen, just do the job you're given and do it well. And someone will notice, you know, and I say, to, to be very blunt about it, if I understand that maybe you want to be doing something more than what you're doing, but if you've been given this job and you suck at it, you don't, you're not going to get a better one. So right. do this job and do it well, and someone will notice. And, you know, there's a different pace to this than, than everything else. It's not, you know, six years of medical school and then you're a doctor. It's not, 
go to law school, pass the bar, and then you're a lawyer. There's just a different path for everybody, a different, um, just a different way of getting there. And there's not a right or a wrong answer. Maybe someone's going to listen to me and say I'm wrong and that they're entitled to that. But it's just been my experience that way. And I'm thankful that I've been able to succeed uh, to a relative degree doing what I'm doing. Before you started covering the Yankees, you covered the Olympics. You covered the Olympics in 96 in Atlanta and the 2000 Summer Games as well in Sydney for Westwood One. What was that experience like for you covering something so big like the Olympics? It was terrific. Both times, they're both different experiences for me. They came in my my first run at WFAN was as a producer, so doing behind-the-scenes stuff, and then as an update anchor. So this is in the period from 1993 to 2000. In 96, I got chosen to be on the production crew for Wesley One Radio, and so I was responsible for like the different audio feeds and audio highlights and helping the anchors and the talk shows um, get product on the air. I, I had a wonderful experience with that, mostly because I had to work with some nationally known announcers and broadcasters, and I watched what they did. And with my aspirations of being on the air, I realized at that point in time that I was ready to do what they were doing. Not that I was good enough, as good as they were yet, but I could be. I knew that what I was capable of doing was what they were doing. And that within a year, I had gotten myself my first full-time on-air job in Philadelphia at that point. And I, had, well, I went back to FN a year later. But uh, when I, then when 2000 came along, I was now an update anchor and an on-air talent. So I got to go as, as a reporter uh, on-air reporter to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. And that was phenomenal. I covered every men's and women's basketball game. I covered the men's gold medal baseball games um, and covered uh, the women's gold medal softball game. And and that was And funny thing is, one of the crossovers to that was there's a kid on the um, baseball team in 2000, Team USA, who came to spring training with the Yankees in 2001. And so his name is Todd Williams. And so in my quest to get to know anybody in that clubhouse, all of a sudden, here's a guy that I watched pitch in Sydney, you know, eight months earlier, whatever it was. And um, it was a way of getting to know somebody there. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed both of those experiences tremendously. Uh, going to places, seeing things I never would have seen before. Uh, there was a moment when in 96, I was walking into our studio uh, in the International Broadcast Center and this big commotion in the hallway right behind me. I turn around and there's Muhammad Ali standing right there. Wow. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to, you know, pre-iPhones, I threw somebody a camera and had him click a picture of me. And I mean, thank the Lord, it actually came out. It wasn't fuzzy. It wasn't shaking. There wasn't a thumb <laughs> in the way. I got, I got a picture of me and Muhammad Ali. Another time I turned around and photographic evidence bill clinton is standing right there in the doorway and and looking in at our operation and i you know they're wonderful experiences and just memories of, of things that you know, certain pictures in your head and uh you know i'll, I'll be 48 next month I, these pictures were in my head for a long time sure now let's end this with a little mini lightning round I'm just gonna ask you a couple like series of random questions just give me a quick answer to first thing that pops in your head 
Ready? I hope so. A lot of pressure. <laughs> Favorite athlete that you've covered? Favorite athlete that I've covered? Well, I, I will say this because I got to cover a large chunk, not the whole, but a large chunk of Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera's careers to legitimate um, Monument Park Hall of Fame Yankees. Uh, and, and the fact that I, what I look at as I say, 10 years from now, I could be walking down the street and see these two guys and I could stop them and have them say hi to my kids and have a conversation with them. That's like our generations, DiMaggio, Mantle, Barra, Monument Park Yankees. That's what I appreciate about having seen over a decade's worth of their careers up close. So for that reason, I would tell you that's my answer. Favorite city to go visit and cover games in on the road? Several of them. I always like Baltimore because I have friends and family close by. Uh, I like Seattle because I love the ballpark. I like walking around there. And uh, so there's, I've always liked going to Boston. Um, you know, the games sometimes are a little long, but I do like going there. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff. San Francisco, when you go to Oakland uh, and you get to see the Bay Area, that's, that's a really big perk of covering baseball. You're going the cities and seeing places that you probably uh, don't get to all the time on your own. Do you have one or two friends in the business that you would consider your closest friends? Is there one or two specific? I've covered almost every one of my seasons on the Yankees with Mark Feinsand, who's with MLB.com, spent a large time daily news also, but his first year was my first year in 01. We've got, I mean, almost everybody, listen, I had eight or 10 beat reporters at my wedding. You know, I, I don't want to wow. name them all. I, I can name, I can name fine Sam because he was, we've covered every single year together. I think we have the photographic evidence to, to prove it, but um, I, I, I'm, I've been fortunate enough to be really great friends with a lot of people here. And some of my closest friends are the guys, when you go to the ballpark, you, it's, you know, you're, you're not working with those other people. You're working against those other people, as we talked about. But they're your friends. They're the guys you see every day. I don't see the people I work with at FAN every day. I see the people from the news and the Post and Newsday and Yes and SNY and MLB Network. I see all these people every single day. These guys are my friends, and they make going to the park fun. Second last question here. If Twitter came down with a rule and it said, you know what, Sweeney? We're going to only allow you to follow one person and one person only on Twitter. Who would that person probably be for you? Don't have to be about sports. It could be anyone that you follow on Twitter right now. You'd have to lose them all wow. except one. One, I can only follow one. Huh? That's it. Yep. Um, see, I gotta, I, it would have to be somebody that makes me laugh. And I'm not sure who like tweets the most or... Um, I, I, I've got to go back. It's like, I, I love, I, I wish Jerry Seinfeld tweeted more. I wish Chris Rock tweeted more. Uh, I think there's, I think somebody recently started pulling out because of the Netflix thing, the, the Gary Shandling stuff. I think they started tweeting from his account and a lot of old material, uh, stuff, anything like that. That would just could, if I could just follow that stuff and, and make me laugh every day, that's the kind of stuff I'd probably follow. Although I can't, probably come up with one specific one for you right now okay last question here you could have three dinner guests at your table from any era who would you have 
my three dinner guests. Yeah, anyone um, from any time. All right. Well, let's see. I guess they, and I've never really answered this question before, so this really is going to be somewhat off the top of my head. Um, I would like George Carlin. Okay. Um, Sam Cooke. Okay. And boy, who would and Bruce Springsteen? Nice. Those are good yeah. answers. I like that. I because I'm going to be entertained for days with those three at my table. Okay, everyone. Sweeney Murdy. Sweeney, thanks so much for joining the show. I've already said at the top, you can follow him on Twitter at Yankees WFAN. You're en route to the ballpark right now, so our signal's been a little bit in and out. I really appreciate your time. I know how busy you are, so it means a lot for me to have you come on this podcast. Thanks for taking the time and doing this. Patrick, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. I really appreciate taking the time. You just made the list. Barack Lester. Michael Cole, shut up. The house that A.J. Styles built. Who wants to walk with the lion? This is my yard now. Okay, I'm joined by John Alba. John, you know what? This is your third time on here. I already know it's ABC7, Fox 22, and Bangor, Maine. This time, I don't even need the notes in front of me anymore. How you doing? There you go. I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. It's been a uh, been a bit of a crazy time lately, but just so much going on here in New England sports and then keeping up with everything that's been going on in the wrestling world between this crazy WWE weekend and New Japan, what happened over there, some big stuff there too. So just so much going on. I'm going to talk to you mainly about Backlash, Raw, and SmackDown. And in the interest of uh, full disclosure here, I need to let you know that I didn't watch them with the same uh, alertness that I usually do, so to speak. Of course. Long story short, it was my birthday this weekend, and I had two buddies from Buffalo and two buddies from Texas come down to Florida to hang out with me. Started last Thursday, and long story short, it turned into pretty much five days of binge drinking. And I'm just too old and I don't do that shit well anymore. So I did watch Backlash and I did watch uh, Raw, but those two days, my mind wasn't exactly uh, coherent, so to speak. So I may be asking you more questions and to guide me through it more than usual. I understand. (laughs) All right. Well, let's start with Backlash. That was Sunday night coming from Newark. I did remember the opening match well. It was Seth Rollins and The Miz. They opened the show. And from my recollection of it, it was the best match of the night. These guys may literally be two of, if not the two top performers going in this company right now. Uh, your thoughts? Well, Seth Rollins certainly is. I'll tell you that. He is right now probably a top six, top seven wrestler in the world. And he's he's really just been absolutely fantastic. And uh, he's got that big time baby face fire that I think a lot of people were hoping he was going to have two years ago when he made his return. Ironically, actually, in that very same arena. My uh, my home arena, per se, Newark, New Jersey. And uh, he came out with just total fire here. No no pun intended on the burn it down. And Ian The Miz had a great match. You know, The Miz 
incredibly charismatic, a great character itself. And he can be carried to a great match. And that's what happened here. He and Seth Rollins had good chemistry and they set the tone for what should have been a great show. And well, the rest of it, uh, yeah. not so much, <laughs> not so much. I'm glad you brought up Seth, you know, having the baby face fire going right now. I didn't like it so much at first. I was like, turn heel. I liked him better when he was at Swarmy Rat Heel for a long time. But you are right, man. He's got that fire going right now. I think it started with the gauntlet match. At least for me, it did. When he beat, I, I know he beat yeah, Roman. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's a I think that's a good good pinpoint there. Once Jason Jordan got injured, it kind of allowed him to do his own thing, and it's kind of a blessing in disguise. Obviously, injuries are never good, but it did allow him to kind of break out and do his own thing. And he really has been just just lighting it up lately. And and there's fire in his promos, a passion and. The crowds are buying in, and why not? He's dynamic. He's uh, general in between the ropes, and he's got he's got character right now, and that's huge for a babyface. The Roman Reigns and Samoa Joe were in the main event. First question is, why were they in the main event instead of AJ and Shinsuke? That's my first question to you. Well, I'll answer that by this by asking this: Would you have liked to have seen the way that the WWE Championship match ended main event that show and close out the show? Uh, absolutely because, not. You're right about that. I think the show ending on that note would have been uh, less than ideal and less than well received. Not that this match was well received, this this Samoa Joe Roman Reigns match, but I, if if you're comparing it to the finish of that match, then yeah, that's that's that plus. Here's the reality. Roman Reigns is perceived as the big star and the big star gets to close the show. Now, I didn't, to be honest with you, man, I was sleeping at this point, so I didn't even watch the main event. Did did it suck as bad as I've read it did? Or do you think the match was better than giving credit for? Well, I thought thought it started strong with uh, Samoa Joe attacked Roman Reigns before the bell and roughed him up. And I thought that was a good way to start. The crowd was into that. But the show was going on four plus hours at this point. People were tired. It's a Sunday night. They don't like Roman Reigns. And uh, they gave you a 15 plus minute match that was doing rest holds at the seven and a half, eight minute mark. And you just can't have that. You know, it's not when you have guys the caliber of them. And uh, there were videos and pictures floating around the Internet, of course, which I'm sure you're referring to, that uh, people were walking out. People were leaving. and the second that Roman Reigns did pick up the win, they cut to the crowd for a reaction shot. And the reaction they got was a bunch of people leaving, which was not what you want as to quote the uh, late great manager, even though he's uh, dead, but as a manager, Joe Girardi, uh, (laughs) it's not what you want. And uh, it, it was unfortunate, but right now I think there's, there's a big, uh, big problem right now with this Roman Reigns stuff. And we are going on four plus years now where he's supposed to be the guy and you can only have so many coronations. You can only have so many times where uh, he's going to have his big triumphant moment with the fans and it just hasn't happened. And I'm not sure that it's going to. We'll get to him again in a minute. Cause I got another question to ask you about him. Let's go now to, to AJ and Nakamura. Like you talked about. Yeah, you're right. In hindsight, you can't end a show like that. Although, I mean, the crowd walked out on apparently on Roman winning anyway, but I've enjoyed heel Shinsuke probably more than face. And I even don't mind the low blow thing, but a no DQ world title match that ends in a double count out after a double nut shot. What are they thinking? 
Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm with you. I, I, I thought the feud was strong, and, and I, I, I enjoyed the low blows uh, as being a key piece to this angle. My first question is, why wasn't AJ wearing a cup? Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Babyface is, baby is supposed to be smart, and maybe that's coming. But, uh, yeah, you know, I thought the double low blow was a great spot, but a terrible, terrible finish. And, and, and like you said, in a no DQ, you're expecting to get something out of it. And you get a count out and no contest, which logically makes you think now they're going to have a last man standing match, which is that what people really want to see out of Shinsuke Nakamura and AJ Styles? I'm not so sure about that. But you know what? I, I don't foresee it going past money in the bank. So we'll see how it ends at that point. It's disappointing because those are two guys that Soon from the moment he came to the main roster, that was my thought. I was like, oh my God, Shinsuke and AJ in WWE, they're going to set the company on fire with these matches. And they've been good, but they haven't been as good as I thought they were going to be. And yeah, that this was, was a good match until that finish, man. They they were beating each other. You see that gash that AJ got on? Yeah, his I did face see that. From the, from the chair hitting him in the cheek. I, that was brutal. They beat each other up. It just, this was just, uh, oof. Bad, bad finish. And well, I, I, I saw it coming when, when they're both down and the referee gets the two or three. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. This this is the finish here, isn't it? So you and, think that, uh, yeah. You, so you think they're headed towards a, a last man standing match? You think that's what's well, next? Well, that's doing a finish like that certainly makes it feel that way. I, I don't have any interest in seeing a last man standing match, but what else can you do? You've already done the no DQ match. A street fight is basically a no DQ match. A no holds barred match is basically a no DQ match. So what's next? You right. Know? Were you surprised? Cage? I don't know. <laughs> Were you surprised that Daniel Bryan tapped out Big Cass? No, I wasn't surprised that he tapped out Big Cass, but I was surprised that Big Cass tapped in like less than two seconds. Right. That, uh, that didn't make him look good. This match wasn't very good at all. And if you have a bad match with Daniel Bryan, there there might be an issue there. And I like Big Cass. I do. I thought some of his promos in this feud were pretty good. But uh, a lot of standing around in this match. Cass really only had about four moves of offense and then just stuck his arm up in the air. And You know, this was uh, this was just part of that night, man. There, there were just a lot of these duds on this night. And, and what that was a result of, I'm not quite sure, but just a strange rut in booking on one night in particular. So are you surprised or do you have thoughts that Carmella retained against Charlotte Flair? This was, uh, this was crazy uh, for her to retain in the way that she did. She can beat Charlotte clean, but Charlotte beat Oscar streak at WrestleMania. Yeah. So using that transitive property, are you telling me that Carmella's better than Asuka? Right. Maybe that's the message that's trying to be sent here. And Asuka kind of just feels like another girl now, doesn't she? I mean, she just kind of feels like another person. And and by having her get that clean win over Charlotte, I mean, look, it's a nice rub for Carmella, but is anyone going to view her in that light? I'm not sure. Getting the rub, like you said, I get that. And I... Not surprised that she retained, but to do it the way she did, no interference. I mean, she should have cheated to win. Right, exactly. That <laughs> surprises me. I, you know, speaking of a surprise, would you have thought a couple of years ago in NXT with the tag team of Enzo and Big Cass, and, you know, Carmella's the, the, the sidekick, I, I decided that, would you ever think at that time that she would go on, and at this point anyway, 
far and away, she's the biggest star of the three in the WWE. And in terms of success, yeah, probably. I mean, Enzo was a pretty big star, but he had a lot of issues, obviously, and uh, both inside the ring and outside of it. And uh, she's done really well for herself. You know, I, I still think that she's got a long way to go in multitude of ways, but at the same time, she seemingly works very hard and she does the right things to help put herself in this spot. And look, someone's got to, when, when you get a championship, you're either going to sink or you're going to swim. And I guess they're hoping she's going to swim right now because that's a big rub picking up a win over someone like Charlotte clean. And uh, hopefully Charlotte's all right. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw the report that broke, but uh, she ruptured a breast implant. I did and, not. Uh, she's she's going to miss some time, hopefully not too long. I did not know that. Let's stick with the women for a minute. Looks like the, the unofficial burial of Bailey continues. This time she loses <laughs> the Ruby Riot. I mean, God, she can't get over it. I don't know what it is. I thought Bailey was going to be much more on this main roster than she's been at this point. Why it's do you think that booking. is? It's booking. It's booking. It's that simple. And look at this feud with Sasha Banks. It's a total nothing feud. One day they're best friends. The next day they're enemies. Then they're friends again. Then they're enemies. There's no consistency. And you can't tell a story like that. It's just that simple. You can't. And this past week on Raw, they were friends again. But at the pay-per-view, they weren't friends. So it's pretty hard to get someone over in the traditional term when you have that inconsistency. Last thing I want to bring up about Backlash and move on to Raw. I do remember the tag match with, it was Braun and Lashley against KO and Sammy. How does, here's my question. Forget the match itself. How does a guy who's so accomplished and done so much as Bobby Lashley, who made a big name for himself, left, comes back. There's no crowd energy. It's gone already. Nobody, it seems like no one cares about him. He can't even get a reaction. And he just came back a couple weeks ago. Well, there's no character. There's no character. If you don't have a reason to care about a character, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to care at all. And they tried on Raw with that absolutely just bizarre oh. uh, vignette, which was so strange. And I, I don't know how I was supposed to feel after it, but I'm not sure if you followed Lashley during his days in Impact and TNA. There was some great, great stuff with him, especially when he was running as a heel. And he's a legit badass. I mean, he's in, in the cage. He's awesome. He's 13-2 and two in Bellator. This is a guy you can run with. And there's just nothing there right now. I'm totally with you on that. And it's unfortunate because he is talented. And he looks great. Yeah, he's got a great look. I was going to ask you, you know, if John Elba could be in charge of uh, creative booking right now at WWE, <laughs> what do you do with him? What do, what do you do, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, to make people give a shit about him, frankly, because right now they don't. Well, I'd turn him first, and I'd turn him and have him go with Braun Strowman uh, because that's a two-big-man feud that you can roll with, uh, or have him go against, like, a Seth Rollins or something like that. But more than that, if you're not going to turn him, regardless whether you do or don't, any character, and this what they did this week was certainly not the right route to go. Uh, with this whole sisters thing, I, I it was bizarre, and I, I clearly they want to run with him as a babyface, and that's fine. But a character has to have motivation, 
And if a character in pro wrestling doesn't have motivation to be doing something, then you don't get any vested interest as a fan. Right. And that's pretty, I don't know how him talking about his sisters tormenting him and then, then him saying that he loves them gives me any sympathy or empathy for Bobby Lashley. <laughs> I think the only <laughs> path, the only path for him is they got to turn him. I, I, and it may be, Look, it I, I think he can be a successful baby face. It's just, I, I need to know why I should care. I, I, I don't know what he, no reason. right. I don't know what they could do to make me care as a, maybe turn heel and then become a face down the road or something again. But I just don't see it. I don't see a path to him being a baby face and getting over with the fans at this point. And it's crazy because he's such a great wrestler. He really is. Right. I should say compared to what he used to be. No, for sure. And and he, he became much better in TNA. And, right. And uh, like I said, he's a legit athlete. I mean, he's a great cage fighter. So no reason to think that it couldn't transition over. Let's move on to Raw quickly. I personally like the Braun Strowman, Kevin Owens match. At this point, you know what? I'm... I'm just about all in for Braun now is becoming the next WWE champion. I like where the company's going with him. They're dedicated to him. They're committed. I like the matches that he's putting on. I think he's in pretty entertaining. And I love when he goes on the outside of the ring and just runs people over, especially Kevin Owens, who sells it better than anyone. I mean, he has like Dolph Ziggler level selling, getting run over on the outside like that. What are your thoughts on him and their matches? Yeah, I tweeted uh, from the Living the Gimmick account. Bump your butt off, KO, because that's what he was doing. And oh, man, yeah. Did he make him look like a million bucks or what on Raw? And look, Braun is awesome. He's got personality. He has charisma. He's a big man who can move. Uh, does he have weaknesses in the ring? Of course he does. He's a big man. Most big men do. Do you have to protect him a little bit and not overexpose him with a 14, 15, 16, 17-minute match? Yeah, you do. But he connects with the audience. And any person who can connect with the audience deserves to be showcased and you got to think i mean he's got to be up there as one of the favorites for money in the bank he's in the match so we'll see do you kind of think of him i do i don't know maybe you don't agree he reminds me of an 80s style wrestler i think of guys like one man gang that those kind of big guys from the 80s so character filled i mean don't get me wrong he's probably going to become world champion sometime this year for sure but it feels like his spot was in the 80s to me. That's where I think he would have even been bigger than he is now. Well, there were no big men who could work like him in the 80s. True. So if there were, then he had been a leg up on all of them. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's not like hokey in the same sense as those big boss man, one man gang kind of people. But I mean, he, he does remind me of big boss man in, in that he is super athletic for a big guy. And uh, he can certainly impress and open eyes. Do you think Seth Rollins had a intercontinental title open challenge on Monday night? Mojo comes out to wrestle him. Do you think that's going to become a regular thing with Seth or was that a one-off just to get Mojo the, out there? The open challenge? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to see it become that. And it should eventually be answered by a returning Jason Jordan. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm all for that. Look what the... John Cena U.S. Open Challenge did. It was one of the highlights of Raw every single week. Sure. So I'm all for that. You just mentioned Jason Jordan. He's rumored to be coming back any week now. I really liked where he was headed before he got hurt. I loved the fact that he was becoming a mini heel, even though he was still a face, and the crowd gave him, like, nuclear heat. I was going to ask you that. What do you think they are going to do with him? Do you think it's Seth? 
I'm thinking that it's either Seth or maybe he gets involved with something with his former partner, Chad Gable. Maybe they team back up and then he turns on him or something like that. What are your thoughts? Well, Kurt said in a promo a couple weeks back that he wasn't coming back to team with Chad Gable. But you never know. They could obviously do that. I wouldn't hate to see American Alpha back together, considering the Raw Tag Team division isn't much at all right now. But it, it seemed to me like the natural progression they were going for WrestleMania was for Jordan and Rollins to square off. And there was a change made there because Jordan got hurt. So it seems like the natural progression for him to come back as a heel and uh, finish that thing out. We talked about Roman earlier. Seems like now he's ready to get into at least maybe a short-term program with Jinder Mahal because he interfered in his match. What are your thoughts on that? Because I'm like, really? But then again, it's like, all right, well, they won't give him the title. He's got to do something, right? What do you do? My thought is this isn't a feud. I talked about it on this week's edition of Living the Gimmick, actually. I I think this is probably just a one-off match next week where the whole story with Jinder this week on Raw was that he's trying to get in a Money in the Bank qualifier. Right. So he wanted to he needed to impress kurt he needed to open his eyes get his attention so that he got his attention this way so my thought is either next week or the week after uh jinder and roman will have a qualifier match do you feel like they're kind of treating roman reigns almost they're at least attempting to treat him like they did daniel bryan years ago with this underdog role where he's got to keep overcoming the odds it just doesn't work for me that's how he's been booked the last four years it's awful it's just that is what the idea is and the difference is one was organic and the other is not and it's no discredit to roman reigns it's you know it's just how it is and you can like it you can dislike it but if that's the route they want to go then that's the route they're going to try to go my worry is just that it's going to kill the guy in the long term and that the roman reigns character is never going to be what it can be because people will have just gotten to the point where they're just tired of it being forced down their throats. And I hope that's not the case because he's very talented. And I do think a short-term heel turn, even a short-term heel turn for Roman Reigns would do him wonders. Much like his cousin, The Rock, who benefited greatly from a short-term heel turn. I, I, can't, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. Turn him heel for a while. Have him align with some kind of authority. Have the authority abuse him or do something wrong. And then you go back. And you'll end up with more fans than he has now. I couldn't agree with you more. Let's go one more Raw thing here. Do you think maybe it's time to have someone take Kurt Angle's spot as GM? How do you feel about the job he's doing? Whether it's through creative stuff or, you know, his words in the ring, his promos. What's your assessment of him right now as GM? And do you think maybe they should look for someone else? I'll always have a soft spot for Kurt. But just because he was one of my guys growing up, sure. was the man. But I, I, I don't think any of us are kidding ourselves when we look at it objectively and realize it is what it is with Kurt. And he's often tripping over what he has to say. And he's goofy. Part of that goofiness plays into his charm. Yeah, as but, a wrestler. But it is also refreshing right now to have two baby faces as authority figures uh, in him and Paige. And prior to that, him and Brian, that is refreshing because in wrestling, you're so used to having just heels, 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 and authority figures. I was a heel authority figure. It, it, it is so traditional in pro wrestling, uh, but it's nice to have something different. So for now, I'm fine with it. I don't see it as a long-term Eric Bischoff kind of thing. 
generally speaking about Raw, I think we would both agree that Seth Rollins and Braun Strowman are like highlights. I'm sure you, you, you like Kevin Owens too, Finn Balor. There's a couple other things about Raw that are good. But on a whole right now, and maybe I'm reading the tea leaves wrong, but for me, Raw seems to really be lacking lately. Like almost to the point that I still watch it on Mondays, but it's not even something I look forward to. Now, I know me and you differ. I'm a wrestling guy, but like you're really a wrestling guy. You have your own podcast, you know, living the gimmick and you do a bunch of other wrestling things, indie stuff like that. So you're more of a, a little more of a committed wrestling guy than I am. But still, what's your take right now on Roddy? Is it tough to take right now or do you think Raw's fine? Well, I mean, not only am I a wrestling guy, I'm a TV guy. I work in television. And right. I can tell you that producing television content is extremely difficult at any level. I've worked in national television. I worked at MLB Network. I produced television for national sports network. And it is tough and it is hard. And when you have three hours to fill every single week without ex- overexposing stars, it's hard. It's very hard. The hardest thing that they have done for themselves is making Raw a three-hour show. And we've heard all these rumors about, well, what if Fox were to pick up WWE programming, then it would go prime time just to two hours. And, and maybe that would be a blessing in disguise if that would happen, but I don't see that happening. So the ratings reflected this week, both raw and SmackDown were down catastrophically raw registered its lowest rating of the year, which that includes the night it went against the college football national championship game. And SmackDown was its lowest rating since Halloween. So that's the residual effect of a bad pay-per-view, unfortunately. Do you think that Brock Lesnar being the universal champion, which is the one that represents Raw, and him barely being there anymore, do you think not having a world title presence on a weekly basis on the show might have a negative impact on things as well? I think in the eyes of many fans, it certainly does. I'm more of the sense that your world champion should be a special attraction not maybe to the extent that Brock is, because Brock really is rarely ever there. Right. But I'm I'm not of the belief that your world champion should be in matches every single week because that makes them feel a little less special, in my opinion. And it it should be an attraction when your world champion is wrestling, but not being there certainly hurts. And Uh, You know, there was a time, and I think you and I talked about this, there was a time when WWE really needed Brock Lesnar to be that big box office attraction. Right. And I don't think that is as necessary anymore. It certainly is helpful, but I don't think it's as much as a need as it once was when you have guys like AJ Styles, when you have guys like Shinsuke Nakamura and Samoa Joe. I don't know. Put on your prediction hat right now. When do you think Brock finally drops the strap? Where do you think it's going to happen, and who do you think is going to be the one to, to do the honor of taking it from him? SummerSlam, and uh, one of Roman Reigns, Braun Strowman, or Seth Rollins. I feel pretty confident it's going to be one of those three. Um, yeah, I said it on my podcast today. I still think when all is said and done, Roman Reigns is going to win Money in the Bank, and and I think he will be the one that beats Brock Lesnar because. That's what the story's been. I would be much more interested in seeing a Braun Strowman, for example, win that briefcase and say, at SummerSlam, I'm catching, catching, cashing in and getting my moment. And I, I think that would resonate more with fans for sure. But who knows, man? I, I think the I think they are hell-bent on getting this big moment with Roman Reigns. And 
and there's there's been like three opportunities in the last month alone to do it, and it hasn't been done. So we'll you know, see. I just remembered. I haven't talked to you on at least on the air anyway since WrestleMania. I was shocked that Roman Reigns did not win the belt at the Greatest World Rumble. I would have I would have bet anyone anything that that was going to be where they put the belt on him. Figure they're in another continent. The fans are going to treat him a lot better. And what is a way to put it on him on a Friday afternoon when half the people ain't even watching anyway. So him not to win the belt even there. Yeah, that shocked me. Were you surprised about that? I know I was. Yeah, but I also watched that whole show and was saying to myself, well, this is pretty much a house show. And that's how that whole show was booked. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, when you do that multi-million dollar presentation of it and make it like a big event, uh, the show booking wise certainly was not a big, big event. Do you think if if Roman Reigns does go on to win Money in the Bank, like you suggested, you think could happen or probably will happen in your estimation, if he does, how do you think he's going to cash in? Do you think he's going to go man to man and say, I'm cashing in like you said, Braun might at SummerSlam or wherever? Or do you think he's going to do it in a dastardly heel fashion where, I don't know, maybe well, Braun comes out and beats the shit out of Brock and Brock's lying there. And then that's how Roman Reigns catches it in. That's I mean, if I'm, if I'm getting the pen and I'm turning Roman, because that's the first thing I do with it, mm-hmm. I'd have him win, have Braun get his SummerSlam match against Lesnar, win it, and then have Roman cash in on Braun Strowman, much to the chagrin of everyone in Brooklyn. Nuclear but, heat. Right, exactly. Do I see that as the route? No. But you know what? This thing has been pushed off for so long you got to think plans have changed so much. They can change again. And there are other guys who could benefit from the briefcase more. There are your Finn Balas, your Samoa Joes, your Rusevs, who would all benefit from having that briefcase. But if you're going to tell a long-term story with it, Roman Reigns might be your best option if you're going to make a turn with the character. Because it's a great tool to have a turn. I just don't know if that's going to be the route. That's a great point right there. Let's talk about SmackDown for just a couple minutes before we get out of here. Huge shocker. Rusev beats Brian. Were you, first of all, whoa. (laughs) You know what I mean? Your thoughts? Are you as stunned about that as I was? I wasn't stunned that he beat him. I was surprised that it was a clean win. Right. Uh, Fair and square, yeah. I would have thought that Big Cass, because he attacked Brian after that pay-per-view match, I would have thought Big Cass would have played a role in this. He didn't. It was a clean win for Rusev. My ideology here is that you just got Brian back. You don't want to put him in a ladder match, which I can't blame them. Right. And quite frankly, I'd be terrified watching him in a ladder match right now, even though he has not turned it down. His intensity is just as high as it was when he left the first time around. Uh, but look, Rusev's hot right now. And and I know a lot of people want him to be a babyface, And believe me, I do, too. But this was a good showcase spot for him. And now he's going to be in a match where he can be highlighted. And think about this. They're in Chicago, one of the hottest wrestling crowds in the world. He's going to be climbing that ladder. And people are going to be losing their minds. Yeah. Him. And guess what you can do then? You can have someone cost him. And there's your Rusev babyface turn. I was at Money in the Bank in 2013 when they did that same thing with Cody. And it really felt like Cody was going to catch on fire as a babyface. And that led to that big dusty match with uh, he and Goldust versus the shield. And it was all that great stuff. You can do a big turn there. So I'm happy about it. I, I, I think money in the bank is a good spot for Rusev. I, I, there's two things that I really love about wrestling. that will always 
probably for as long as I'm alive, will keep me coming back. And that's this. Number one, the occasional surprise. I mean, in today's day and age, it's so hard to pull off with the internet and you mm-hmm. know all kinds of sources. But every once in a while, something happens that you never see coming. Now, for me personally, I, when Shane McMahon returned, I didn't know. I didn't hear about it. I'm sure maybe other people did, but I didn't. So I was stunned when I saw that. And I don't forget, I tune in potentially to see that shocking moment. And then the other thing that I love is that not often, but every now and then, anything can happen in the ring. Like Rusev beating Daniel Bryan clean. Nine out of 10 weeks, that's something like that ain't happening. But when you know that they could happen at any time, I think it brings the casual wrestling fan or even above casual wrestling fan will always keep tuning in for those moments. So for me, that's what I love most about Rusev beating Daniel Bryan in the manner that he did is that it shows you that every now and then with booking, anything could happen. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. I, I do worry a little bit about Bryan's standing and I hope that Bryan is still viewed as a top guy and I'm sure he will be. But at the same time, if the plan here is to do something with Rusev, that's okay. Yeah. And, you know, in the power of hindsight, like you said, when you think about the process after having Daniel Bryan in an eight man ladder match is probably not the best health risk for him. So when you break it down, it makes more sense for him to lose. But most people aren't thinking that way, at least not until after the fact. When you're watching on TV live, you're like, oh, holy shit, man, Daniel Bryan just lost. You know what I mean? Yeah, that was a big moment. They were going for that big shock, and it worked. Sure. What do you think about the Biz and the, um, the Biz? <laughs> what did you think about the Miz and Jeff Hardy? That was a good match. The Miz this, was involved in two good much, matches. This was a much better match than Randy Orton's match with Jeff Hardy at Backlash. Sure I'll was. Tell you that. And that's kind of surprising, but uh, it was. It was a good match and another surprise win. When it's a clean win over the U.S. champion to clinch a spot. And look, the Miz is a guy who's proven success with the Money in the Bank briefcase. So maybe he's a guy you run with on SmackDown with it. It'd be interesting. Do I think he needs it? Probably not. But it'd be interesting. So I'm all about that. I think his character's on fire right now. I mean, he's oh, always no, on fire with great. the mic, but like his wrestling has been better too. He might have a world, he might get a, a world title run in him before he's done. Again, very much so, first. very possible. What do you think about the Iconics so far? Um, indifference, honestly. Um, I think a lot of people are really hot on them. I think they're somewhere with the characters. I think there's something there. I have yet to be all that impressed with anything they've really done in the ring. Um, I've followed both of their careers for a while now. And I know that Peyton Royce, so she's a storm Academy. She's trained by one of the greatest technical wrestlers ever. Uh, and, and I've known what she's capable of. And I saw a few glimpses of that in NXT. Haven't really seen that yet on the main roster. So, uh, you know, plenty of time, obviously for them to do something. I'm not as wild as everyone else is right now. Last topic. And I'll let you go. What do you think of the job? of Paige as GM right now. It's a really, for me, a touchy subject because I really love Paige as a character and a performer and as a person. I don't know how I feel about her as GM. What are your thoughts? It's it's a feeling out period. You know, you, you know something for your entire life and then it's taken away from you. She right. wrestled her first match at 14 years old and here she is 10 years later and she can't do it anymore. She's told she's not allowed to. So when you have that taken away from you, 
it, everything else becomes an adjustment and you're still around it. And we saw with Brian that that's a hard thing. That's a really hard thing to be surrounded by something that you love and know that you can't be part of that. So I think it's an adjustment period. But like I said to you earlier, for me, it's refreshing to have a baby face authority figure. And she's the kind of character that could turn at the snap of a finger and could pick that up seamlessly. She's a better heel than she is a baby face. Right. But she's, you know, it's feeling out period. I hope she does a good job. I really want her to succeed. You know, it sucks to have her career end the way it did. I mean, in the ring anyway. And, you know, all the things that's happened to her outside of the ring. I feel like she needs wrestling. You know what I mean? So I really hope that this is something that works out. She's the healthiest she's been in a long time right now. And she looks the best she's looked in a long time. She looks healthy. She's away from bad influence. That's all you can ask for. And she's got a movie coming out, too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. They they got moved to next year, right? They moved it back. Got moved to next year. Okay. Now you have your Living the Gimmick podcast. Tell people out there when they can hear it. And you got anything else going on with wrestling lately? Yeah. So it drops every uh, Wednesday. We delve into the entire world of pro wrestling. We delve into some great interviews actually coming up soon. Since you've been a WWF, WWE fan for a while, I'm sure you're familiar with Sign Guy, the guy with the red hat. Oh, yeah. Who used to super fan. He's hopping on, living the gimmick soon. Nice. Uh, we, we love profiling indie wrestlers, doing all that good stuff. Drops every single Wednesday on every major podcast out, living the gimmick. And then I'm also a co-host of the Limitless Wrestling podcast. And that's, you know, Limitless Wrestling is one of, if not the top promotion in New England right now. And they got a great show coming up this Friday over in Portland, Maine, and excited to see what comes of all that. John, as always, thanks for your time. Third time on the show. You're leading the pack now. You're officially a recurring guest. I appreciate your time, buddy. Hey, I I appreciate you taking the time and putting me ahead of some athletes. I mean, hey, that's, I, I, I never was the most athletic guy in the field, but if I'm the most athletic guy in the podcast race, then Something's going right. (laughs) All right, buddy. Take care. Thanks. All right. That'll wrap up this latest Thursday episode. Huge thanks to Yankees beat reporter Sweeney Murty from WFAN in New York City for coming on and talking about the Yanks, the New York media, and all kinds of other stuff. And again, apologies for the crappy audio at times. Sweeney was driving in the New York City at the time, and we all know how that goes. Also, a big shout out to John Elba for jumping on and talking some WWE with me. Always love having that guy on. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcast. It's quick, it's easy, most importantly, it's free. You can also follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. Thanks as always for tuning in i truly appreciate your time more than anything else have a great weekend and i'll be back with a brand new episode on monday till then peace